Today's show brought to you by the Horse Player Happy Hour Playoffs. That competition going to be ongoing for the next several weeks. And alongside it, there's going to be a Breeders' Cup betting challenge qualifier that you can play in with the house cut going to charity. Great way to support the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance and the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation and potentially win a $10,000 BCBC seat. Horseplayers.com. That's the site to go and sign up. Game going to be live any minute now. Go to horseplayers.com. Look for Horse Players Happy Hour Qualifier. Get involved and then join Matt Bernier and I on the live stream. Breeders' Cup Social Media in the Money Social Media Thursday at 4 until the contest is over. We hope to see you there. Get involved at horseplayers.com. Hello and welcome to an extra edition of In the Money Players Podcast. I had so much stuff this week. I had to do two shows, and they're both kind of long ones. That's how good they are. I'm sure you've already seen yesterday. Go back and listen if you haven't. Mike Maloney and Richard Migliori stopped by for that one. This time around, we're going to have Kenny McPeak. Boy, what a delight he was to speak with. We've got Michael Adolfson and Naomi Tucker going to be looking back at Arc Day, looking ahead to some of the European shippers we expect to see at the Breeders' Cup. And we wrap things up with returning guest Chris Larmy, who won the Hawthorne Invitational over the weekend. And he talks about uh, the fun he had there and that unique format. And I always learn something about contest play when I hear from Chris. So stay tuned to the end. Going to be a lot of fun and we're going to get started right after this. Today's show also brought to you in part by our friends at the KTDF. Purses in Kentucky are powered by the Kentucky Thoroughbred Development Fund, aka the KTDF. The KTDF dollars in purses are only for Kentucky bred horses. So breeding in Kentucky is the best way to maximize profits and return on racing and breeding investments. Churchill Downs Racing and the Kentucky Racing Circuit as a whole continue to be on an incredible upward trajectory. KTDF funds are a big reason for that. You're going to be hearing more about the KTDF in our very next segment. Yeah, w- walking around our farm looking at looking at some of the horses, young horses and older horse, Tis the Bomb, Smile Happy. Nice. The world-famous Butterbean. <laughs> that voice you hear is the next guest on the show. I'm going to leave that part in. I like the I like the color. He is Ken McPeak. Ken, how are things? Sounds like a nice morning on the farm. Yeah, it is. It's um, Magdalena Farm here in Lexington. I'm here with Alan Shell. We're walking around checking checking young horses. We've got some yearlings that we bought in September that have got to go to uh, Florida here this week, and then we've got. Some older horses that most people will recognize, Smile Happy and Tis the Bomb, Butterbean, um, several others that are out here that are getting a little R&R before we figure out where they go for the winter. Excellent stuff. I'll start with a bloodstock question for you then. I feel like you are very much well known as someone particularly good at finding value sires early on before maybe the rest of the world has caught up to them and just finding value in general at the sales without giving away all of your secrets. How did you develop that skill? What are the, some of the things that you look for? How did I develop it? Um, you know, as a young trainer, I, I got a little exhausted with horses coming to me that were what I would call maybe ones they didn't sell or horses that couldn't sell. And, you you know, the only way to compete in this game is, is I mean, I, I don't think the difference between – there are some very good trainers that have bad horses. There are some very bad trainers that have good horses. So 
but ultimately I think a good horse is what you need. And we try to, and I like to say that I trained enough slow horses to know what they look like and enough good ones to know the difference. And um, so when I go to auction, I don't get, I don't discriminate on who they're by or who they're out of so much as I discriminate on what they look like. And so we, um, when I started my career buying horses, I started out of the back end of the auction and Typically, I couldn't work until book five, six, or seven, or even basic October. And, um, uh, you know, usually I had a minimal budget. My first yearling budget was $6,000. <laughs> so, uh, so you learn to get creative and try to figure out where you can, quote, unquote, steal one. <laughs> and we still try to do that. That's great. That's interesting. So it's less about looking for a specific sire, more about focusing on the physicals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a good horse is made a certain way, and they don't necessarily know where they came from. Probably one of my favorite favorite buys of all time was Einstein out of Brazil. Oh yeah, I was the first one that imported a horse like that, and and then proceeded to race him from yearling on in the U.S. And of course, I didn't train the horse because I took a bit of a sabbatical during that period. You know, they come from anywhere and everywhere. You just don't ever know. Helen Pitts, right? A former assistant of yours, if I'm remembering right. Yeah, yeah. My and, mother was terminal ill during that period. It was kind of a kind of a little uh, rough spot for, for me personally. And we, um, Helen did a very good job with that horse as well as Curlin. That's right. And Einstein, I mean, gosh, a tri-surface superstar, really. $45,000 yearling in a... <laughs> And a Brazilian yearling sale. I mean, he was a big, handsome colt with spend the buck on the top line and a really good female family. And you uh, you just never know where they come from. So, um, you know, I tend to kind of march to a different beat because I'm just more interested in the physical. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work the OBS sale if they'll, if they'll work with me on it. I'm thinking about going down there, and then we'll work the phasing sale again like we always do. And We'll uh, turn over every stone. There's a famous story. I don't know if you're a baseball fan, but there's a famous story about Don Larson and a reporter years later asking him about his perfect game in the the World Series and doing so very apologetically, saying something like, I'm sure you're tired about talking about this, but, and then asking about the perfect game, and Larson saying something like, hey, I never get tired of talking about it. I'm going to assume it's the same with you and people in my chair asking you about Curlin. Yeah, that was an interesting one. Um, You know, he didn't pass the veterinarian as a yearling. He had had issues, and he – when he walked out, he, he had the body of a Greek god, and but he had he had an ankle that was probably fifty percent bigger than it was supposed to be, and um, we did some research and I actually offered that horse to. It took six clients before somebody finally took him. I mean, I usually buy horses on spec, and uh, just worry about it later after I get them in pocket. And I, I'd offer to one guy, oh, I don't like the pedigree. The stallion's not doing any, sire's not doing any good. Another one didn't have the budget. Another one had already bought too many. And it was one thing after another. And even the guys that ultimately ended up with the horse tried to turn him back to me because they didn't like the ankle. And um, I actually owned him myself for a little period there. Boy, was it, wasn't I smart enough to keep him? Gosh. <laughs> Do you feel he was supposed to be a part? He was supposed to be a Magdalena partnership horse, and um, 
we uh, had already had half the partnership put together and then they spun around and decided they were going to keep him and and uh, i ended up um without a share in the horse but you know look really proud of what he did i mean steve asked me to did a great job with him and he um one of those uh freaky good horses we all want to be around do you feel connected to his offspring? I mean, he's obviously had such an impact on the breed at this point. When you, when you see one, do you do you feel a bit of a kinship there? Well, um, I don't know if it's a sign of getting old or experienced, but if you look at the pedigrees today, um, Harlan's Holiday's in there, through into mischief, take charge ladies' influence is dramatic. Um, you know, when you see Curlin and and those those names in the pedigree. Um, yeah, I'm very proud of it. I mean, it's uh, it's hard to do, and actually, I'm gonna, I'm going to tell you, we're trying to continue to do it again. We don't want to rest on any laurels. We want to, you know, make a difference. No, oh, no doubt about it. Well, that's great. It's just great perspective. Not my scheduled topic for today, but any chance to turn down that path and talk to you about uh, some of these amazing horses you've been involved with. I'm going to pivot though and talk to you about an exciting one. Um, you've got. Right now, this two-year-old filly who was so impressive in the Pocahontas the other week, fun and feisty. How's she doing? Um, I'm curious to know what your plans for her are. Well, she's set for the Alcibiades. Um, that filly, uh, sky's the limit with her. You know, I've run in the, in the Pocahontas and won it several times, and she might be as impressive as, as any of them I run over there. And We were anticipating or looking forward to her running long, and uh, the stretch outs made all the difference. And I think she's got a bullseye right on the Alcibiades. I've won that five times, <laughs> all with horses I bought at auction. Oh, that's cool. So um, fingers crossed we can knock out six and tie <laughs> my good friend Wayne Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> that's excellent. Who are some of the other two-year-olds that have really Im- impressed you that, that you've got at the moment, maybe that we'll be seeing at, uh, at Keeneland or, or Churchill coming up? Um. Yeah, hard to say where to begin. Frosted Departure was a frosted colt who just just won. Uh, he's going to run the Futurity. We've got um, a horse named Honed, who's a who's a sharp Azteca, was just second in the in the Iroquois. He's yep. going to run the Futurity. We've got um, Rarified Flare and another colt by Mendelssohn named B Minor. They're going to both run in the Bourbon. Um, got CC's Cruise Control slated for the Jasmine. And um, I probably am going to run two in the uh, in the um, Alcibiades. I'm also going to run Stellar Lady, who uh, broke her maiden at, at uh, Kentucky Downs. And we're going to shift her back to the dirt because I think she really wants long dirt. And I could give you a list of maidens that I think will be uh, real exciting. I think the uh, listeners would enjoy that. Any any that leap to the top of that list for you? Uh, Bengals go is going to, going to make a start at, uh, probably opening weekend. He's acting like he's, uh, he's acting like he's a really nice horse. Um, gosh, I've got a Galileo cold that we bought in Ireland that we're hopeful to get in before the end of the meeting. Um, no, I'm trying to think, um, this is a really good solid group. I mean, probably ought to keep an eye on, on a list of them over there when we enter them. But I, th- I think we've got a big shot to be competitive for the title, training title. Oh, that's fantastic. That's that's great stuff. You mentioned the Irish sale. I know international racing is something that you're interested in as well. How do you make uh, 
decisions about long-term targets with 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 these horses um and ones that you might even think about running overseas well um yeah i first started going over there with hardbuck another horse that i bought in brazil and almost 20 years ago in 2003 and four and i was i actually went to ascot before wesley did and um Wesley's done a fantastic job over there. I've run second and third in some of those races, but I've never won one. But I don't right now don't have anybody that I think really suits going over. We um, contemplated taking Classic Causeway over for one of the British Champions Day races, but unfortunately we missed the nomination by about a week. So he was going to have to be supple- supplemented, and I really would have loved to have taken him over, but the supplement's almost 70000 so that was kind of a – a no go. And we, um, you know, maybe next year, if I get the right horses for the right distances, I mean, I, I tend not to be aggressive enough with the young horses in for, to make Royal Ascot and some of those sprint races. And I probably prefer the, the distance as it extends in you know, the mile. And we actually talked about taking Tiz the bomb over this year for the, for the 2000 guineas and also the English Derby, but we had a kind of a bureaucratic, glitch on that but um but i love going when i can and it's just got to be right situation makes sense you talked about classic causeway what are the current plans for him he's going to go in the coolmore mile with keeneland so we're going to shorten him up i think a mile and a half was a little too much for him and he you know he's just a lovely horse to be around we've got um another uh oh well we had a nice little workout of him this week and he uh, had a little maintenance hat at, at Churchill, but um, Le Peru, Julian Le Peru, will be back up on him, and I think you know one turn mile or flat mile ought to be better for him, and hopefully he can get the type of pace in the race that unfolds that that, that helps his chances. Breeders' Cup at Keeneland this year, of course, I would imagine that holds some special significance for you. You have any uh, runners? Obviously, we'll see what happens with all the two-year-olds. But any other runners specifically you're thinking about pointing for the Breeders' Cup? Well, rattle and roll coming out of the uh, the, the Oklahoma Derby win. We're going to nominate him to the marathon. I think he'll handle that really well. We'll uh, either run him in the Fayette or the marathon, and then I don't see. Um, I mean, other than that. It's going to depend on how my young horses run opening week at Keeneland, and we'll, we'll uh, have to take that as it comes. That might have, must have been a satisfying win in the Oklahoma Derby, getting rattle and roll back on the right uh, track. You know what? He's a lovely horse. You know, we t- we've taken kind of the low road and instead of hooking horns with horses that, that went to the Pascal and the Travers. And so we kept him Midwest, and we've let him build his confidence and – the Mackin family, they're having a blast with that colt. And we might even end up um, out at Zia Park for the, one of the last derbies of the year, the, uh, the Zia Park Derby. So that one's in late November. And um, that, that colt's just been phenomenal where, where we've placed him. And he, uh, he certainly figured out what he needs to do. He's really confident right now. 
Yeah, the, the, the fan duel race, I guess, signaled the, really that he was going back in the right direction. And then, yeah, nice win in the Oklahoma Derby. Clearly been carefully handled and sounds like a great uh, experience for, for the owners that you've been able to develop with him. One thing that I've heard about your operation is your one of the other skills that you particularly have is the ability to, to, to organize and stay on top of a large operation of horses. How is that? a skill that you developed over time. Did you learn that from somebody or did you kind of make it up yourself? Um, I actually kind of evolved on my own there. Um, I, I can't say that I came up under anyone. I, I started out almost by accident, but um, over time I had a, had a um, growth stable grew. When I had Tejano run my first Kentucky Derby runner, Tejano run was a horse that, that, almost tripled my my stable because i had people sending me horses left and right all of a sudden and you know it's funny because when you become the favorite flavor then people uh, gravitate to you and then when you go in a slump they move away so you learn who your friends are real fast in the slumps but um but the um that that tripling of uh, of uh, stock to handle was a real eye-opener for me um, I'm an avid reader, believe it or not. I, I, I'm a, I've read several what I call high-level management books to try to figure out how I could organize or reorganize the stable so that I could handle it. And we use um, the one-minute manager for those out there that, that are business, um, have read some of the business books. The one-minute manager is a fantastic basic management book. I mean, operating a racing stable is not rocket science, but you have to have structure. And I think in, in the beginning when I had 20, 25, I could structure it myself every day. But when we went to 75, it was okay. Um, we, we need to have some, some standard operating procedures in place. And today the, those procedures are almost like clockwork for all the assistants that I have. And they understand you know, what time horses, what time we start, what time we finish and everything we do in between we don't standardize the training so much as we, or the feeding as we do the, the routine so that employees can go division to, to division and ex- know what to expect. So that was, that was vital. And, um, actually my father-in-law, um, Sheldon Lustig, I'll give credit to that. And he, uh, he also recommended several other books. He, he was a brigadier general in the military. He was, uh, uh an amazing guy. And, he, uh, he helped me at that stage in my career. And then today we use a program called TLOR, which is a horse management program. For those out there that want to look it up, net. And to manage a large group of horses, it does our invoicing. It handles our uh, health records. We can easily print uh, ownership details. It, it, there, there's a lot of... Um, deep dive details that it keeps. And I don't know how I could function without T-Lore. And then I've got a, a staff. Um, I'm actually sitting here with Cindy Greathouse in my office and we are getting ready to go over tasks lists because we've got a farm in Lexington to run and we've got a training center in Florida that, that always needs details and things like who's fixing the tractor tire. Uh, we've got a light bulb. We've got a light bulb out in barn four. Uh, there's a water leak in barn three. Um, Who's, who's on it? And so we delegate and pass, I'm going to say, pitch those balls to people that we can depend on. And, I mean, the, the list is ongoing. Alan Shell runs Magdalena. Dominic Brennan and Sean Charlton run 
uh, Silverleaf and Ocala. Um, I've got Ray Brenner and uh, Keeneland. I've got Jake McEntee, who's in New York right now. And then I've got my right arm, Greg Geyer, who's at Churchill. And um, they, well, I speak to all of them every day, driving crazy. <laughs> There's a lot of business people listening, nodding their heads when you talk about all the challenges that are involved. It's interesting. You don't necessarily think of running a stable as, as, as a business in the sense of some other businesses, but I think you've made it pretty clear that a lot of the challenges and, and the day-to-day are, are, are kind of the same. It's amazing. Well, you have to handle those, and if you can't handle those, and the business falls apart, um, you know, payrolls are crazy, and then you've got tax issues and workman's compensation, and I could go on and on. Um, who's changing all the vehicles that we have with changing oil changes? Make sure you don't miss those. Um, there's, a, like I said, deep, a deep dive of things that need to be, be taken care of, but surrounded by really good people, fortunate. I wanted to ask you a LASIX question because I know you're somebody who's been uh, involved in that debate. And I'm, I'm curious how you think this experiment is going and, and what you think the next evolution is going to look like. I was never a big, big um, proponent of LASIX. Even 20 years ago, I would, when I was a claiming trainer or more, um, I would actually reduce the LASIX significantly because I thought horses ran stronger without it. And I thought that the dehydration factor was detrimental. Um, horses couldn't run back as quickly, which is hard on everybody. You know, when an owner can't run a horse back quickly, when a when a racing office can't get horses back in the entry box, then then and, and Lasix is causing that. Then I thought that it was bad for the game. And we, um, you know, and it's controversial. There are horses that need Lasix, and there are horses that need medication. And I do think that the current setup where they've, they've addressed it in graded stakes races is is, a, is really perfect. Um, if a horse needs it that badly, then they can run enlisted stakes or, or allowance races. Um, but, but the really good horses, I think, are the good trainers. It hadn't changed the game any, I don't think. I think that the same trainers that have quality horses are still winning races with or without Lasix. And um, I do think it's better that we run without it. Do you think it's part of why we're seeing some of these field size problems in the graded stakes, though? I mean, we saw that at Saratoga where the overnight stake would fill and the graded stake would have four or five. That, it, it, did make me, it did make me wonder. No, I don't, think, I don't think it has anything to do with that. Um, I've never ducked out of a race because I didn't get Lasix in it. Um, I think it's probably more of the, the horse population and then maybe there's some horses that intimidate some others that keeping – people from running um you know those dynamics are it's hard to say you've got different owners with different ideas and trainers and and then there's the win percentage issue everybody's worried about their win percentage which i think is um, a little overrated but you um you can't be well sometimes running running in a graded stake race and being third is a good thing right you know that's black tight for a filly uh why, why those races don't fill is beyond me yeah one more question for you. This segment's sponsored by our friends at the KTDF, and I wanted to get your take on how these extra KTDF funds have changed your business and, and the th- your thoughts on Kentucky developing into a year-round circuit in part because of that uh, cash. Yeah, well, the KTDF's fantastic. It has been for a long, long time. I'm, I mean, I'm thrilled that they're continuing to, to grow it, and we've um, – 
got predominantly Kentucky breads in our in our barn. Uh, it affects my decision making when I'm buying yearlings, and if they're they're not eligible for the Kentucky bread fund, then then I hesitate and probably move to a horse that is eligible. And the, the fund the purse funds are just seems like they're just growing and growing. It's a huge addition, whether you know for all the Kentucky tracks. I would imagine this is something that's a sentiment shared by, by your owners and affects their buying decisions as well. Well, I mostly make all the buying decisions, so so they're dependent upon me doing that. So I've got this great group of people that I work for, and they they, um, they, they allow me the independence to make the call, and and um, I try to buy try to buy them value and quality at the same time, and we're um, we're um, you know going to continue to do that. Your record speaks for itself. Ken McPeak, thank you so much for your time today. No, you're most certainly welcome. Do you have your accommodations sorted out yet for the Breeders' Cup? Because that auction I was telling you about, the room at the Griffin Gate Marriott that we were having the eBay auction for, it didn't meet its reserve, and it's back and better than ever. Now it's going to benefit this auction, not only the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, but also the Belmont Child Care Association. Go to our pretty link and bid on this thing. Inthemoneypodcast.com slash TRFBC. Great package Kim and the team have put together for you and a great room for one of the best. Next up on the show, very happy to bring in two guests I always enjoy speaking with to talk about one of my favorite days of racing anywhere in the world, Arc Day. Major Breeders' Cup implications, major racing results just standing on their own. And to chat about this, with us on today's show, we bring in from the In The Money Media Network and her own Talk Racing To Me podcast, Naomi Tucker. Naomi, how are you? Hey, Pete. Yeah, no, I, I was going to say, oh, I'm good. But actually, I could have been better. I think being rained on at the art gave me a cold, but it was worth it. So here we are. We'll, we'll get into that in a, in a second, as well as bring in our, our second guest, who's probably still just uh, drying out. And I mean that in, in a literal, not metaphorical sense you know him from the breeders cup notes team and uh, dubai television and many other places even these own airwaves michael adolfson how are you my friend doing well i, I uh, flew overnight from paris last night got into dubai and i'm um, just readjusting to everything else happening right now so the rain did it put a damper on things naomi we'll start with you well, to be honest, I think it was more my own fault that it put a damper on for me because I brought my raincoat on the Saturday and it didn't rain. And then on the Sunday, I forgot. And I was a crew in the car. Well, your it, fault, you're saying. You clearly reverse weather jinxed it. Clearly I did. And it was like one of those really nice, big ass raincoats that would have kept me perfectly dry. And the whole crew in the car was like, oh, we've got time. You can cut, We can go back to grab it for you. I'm like, no, it will be fine. <laughs> and now you have a um, um, it was not fine. The heavens, oh, like it poured down during the parade, you know, the pre-parade for the pre delagda It's so bad that I think it was like Ryan Moore that kind of waited to come out as well. I saw that. I mean, I was hiding in the media room. I literally was trying to watch the horses parade from inside there because without a raincoat, <laughs> without an umbrella, I knew that this would just be the end of it all. And I mean, you end up going out, of course, but you just get soaked. They were building an arc in the backstretch, it looked like. It was, it, was that, it was that kind of stuff. But, Michael, we know those of us who heard you on the little plus preview show we did 
what the day lacked in weather, it seemed to gain in, in gambling results. A lot of your selections running well. Were you, were you able to, to weather the rain okay under those circumstances? I, I was. I mean, I mean, hitting hitting hard on Bellback early in the day definitely helped me a whole lot. Uh, my spirits and uh, but I would say as far as the weather goes, it was it was absolutely surreal. I was unlike unlike those who chose to stay in the tent. I um I was in Same. the deluge. I was in the deluge in, in the middle of the parade ring, and um I'll say it's so so it's not like for example. Um, and and I love Churchill Downs and I love the Kentucky Derby, but in the Kentucky Derby and Churchill Downs, when it rains down on you and you're just standing in mud, staring at the muddy track, it's a different experience than when you're in a be- like a beautiful um, parade ring under under you know a canopy of trees uh, on Arc Day. It's a very different feeling when you're being rained on that way. But to me, it was just. And it, the the hilarity of it was it was maybe raining, like sprinkling on and off throughout the day. But literally, as the horses were entering the parade ring for the arc, it poured down like it was. <laughs> it, it was, was, unfair. was It was it like was everybody. Unfair. It, it was it was it was you know it, it was like a media managers media managers uh, sort of sick dream where like they're like you guys all want to be in the parade ring well here you go. Um, <laughs> So, uh, it was, it was, I thought it was amazing to be honest. And, um, I, I, I loved every second of it. I, I, obviously I, Westover didn't perform as well as I thought he would. Um, but to be, it was, it was the, it was the big race was the result everyone kind of wanted in the back of their minds. And, um, it and was narrowly honestly, avoiding, as you pointed out on the pre-show, narrowly avoiding the run, the, the, the result that, that nobody wanted to see. Well, let's start yeah. with the arc. And, and Alpinista and Luke Morris and Sir Mark Prescott, such popular connections getting this win. And this was a very game performance. You know, I thought making the lead as early as she did and knowing the heartbreak that comes in that, that stretch run, I, I wasn't too sure if maybe it wasn't too soon, but she was having none of that. She was just very, very good. Didn't, what were your, your main reactions to her? What do you think happens with her next? Uh, I think it's she's probably going to consider the Japan Cup at this point. But my main reaction was that it was a very ballsy, very strong ride from Luke. And I thought that he went out there. You know, obviously he made that that enable 2019 move uh, where she moved quite early going to the lead a little more than 400 meters out and a little more than a quarter mile out. And she 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 sort of lent herself to being a target at that point, but she's a strong finisher. She can see out even beyond a mile and a half if they want her to. So I'm sure that he had all the, um, all the confidence in the world. And at the same time, it was, it was borderline heavy going and it's incredibly difficult to close on that kind of ground. So the closer you are to the front, the better off you are. Very shrewd tactics. Indeed. What did you think of the performance, Naomi? Were you, what were you pulling for? I mean, you already mentioned it. This was the result that everyone wanted to see. So Mark Prescott, everyone loves him. And for him to get an ARC winner at, of course, an oldest, like a later stage of his career, it meant the world to him. Like I remember being at the press conference and he mentioned saying that when he was riding, when he won his first race, he thought that was the highlight of his career. Uh, you'd have to try and find the press conference recording because he tells the story about being with a girlfriend and someone asked, oh, who won the first? And he went, I did. And he literally thought, that's it. That's the pinnacle. It's never going to get better. And then he basically said, but actually this is 
better than every moment so far that I've experienced in this sport. Like this, this is it. So look, it just, you've got to be happy for him. Of course, the groom as well, the entire team and, and Luke Morris, the first pre de Lagrin. And I thought she was ultra game. Yet Fadini trying to get to Trocada Tassel with that customary close, really trying to mm. run them down. So I, you know, I loved it. I've watched it back a fair few times because to be honest, when I was on site, it's it's quite hard to see, and also yeah, we were recording true. stuff as well. So you look you look other ways at the same time, but no, this this was the result that definitely we were all hoping for. And as Mikey already highlighted, um, so Mark was saying that the Japan Cup is much more firmly on the cards in comparison to perhaps the Breeders' Cup. I did ask him about that, obviously saying, you know, Keenan is quite a lovely track. Don't you want to go there? And he was talking <laughs> about the fact that there is a huge monetary bonus. In Japan, I think they get $3 million because they won the pre the lark. So he's kind of joking about uh, in relation to that, saying that that might be her next target. So unfortunately, it sounds like we won't be seeing her in uh, the Breeders' Cup turf. That would have been quite the treat, wouldn't it? What do you think about some of the horses that finished in behind Michael and their chances of making it over for the Breeders' Cup? Any known runners or, or ones yes. you think might, uh, might come over? Um, we'll probably get Broom out of the race. He just seems to be ready to go no matter what. Um, and he was, um, he was a bit of a sacrificial lamb for Luxembourg, who was hurt in the race. Uh, unfortunately, Luxembourg's now out of the, uh, rest of the year. Um, he'll come back next year. He would have been the surety coming out of the race going into the Breeders' Cup class, the Breeders' Cup turf, rather. Mishrif, I would say, is probably 50-50. It depends on how much the race took out of him, but they were aiming him toward the Breeders' Cup turf as, you know, part of his victory lap that we mentioned in the pre-show. And um, we'll get to her later, but I hear that there is a, a chance that Place du Carousel, who won the Prix de l'Opera, would go to the turf, um, which is a similar route, an identical route, that Tarnawa took in 2020, also at Keeneland. Interesting. We'll talk about that race in more detail. Naomi, any other thoughts on this arc field? I actually thought Broom ran really well, all things considered. And if it ends up a weaker running of the turf, might be a horse I'd be a little more interested in than I would have been off, say, that that Sword Dancer run. But curious to hear any other thoughts you have on, on the big one. Yeah, I think Mikey already said as well, Broom just tends to run his race. He just travels around the world and he turns up everywhere. And I thought he really, really ran game. And of course, mentioned that Luxembourg, that it unfortunately wasn't his day. I think notably that, of course, uh, the Japanese came over with what they thought was strong continuing trying to win that pre the triumph, trying to do what they did, of course, at the Breeders' Cup at Del Mar, win that first Breeders' Cup, and then it got two, trying to win the pre here. Was it meant to be? I know that they were very high. You know, they thought very highly, for example, of Doe Deuce. He never really made a mark. Uh, I thought Tidal Hall, of course, he led. It looked like he could play a major role for them. Ended up weakening later on as well. Perhaps the ground took a little bit out of him. That's what it looked like to me. So, yeah, that was uh, slightly unfortunate for them. Yeah, the, between the pace and the ground, I wasn't going to hold it against title holder at, at all. Any other thoughts on, on the big race before we pivot, Michael? I thought that that... You know, for all the bad press he's having this week, we saw some of the best rides I've seen in a long time from Christoph Sumion. Um, Vidini, he did everything to get that horse to get through these 12 furlongs. He can definitely get a quick ground 12 furlongs, but he carried him. He carried him to the line. And later on in the card, uh, he rode a, a blinder on Malavat to finish second, the Prix de la Foray. Um, but yeah, it was, I thought Vidini ran huge. Al-Hakim really stepped up his game to finish a very good fourth. Um, 
I mentioned Westover earlier. He was my pick, and maybe he needed the run. And I'm hoping they do, being a Judmont Farms horse, consider him for the Breeders' Cup. But that is a long shot at this point. I was and wondering other than that. that yeah, it, other than that, I would say maybe, you know, um, actually, there's not much in there. I know Stay Foolish, I really wanted to go on to the States, but he's already headed back to Japan. Let's go back to the beginning of the day and the Lagadere win in your inaction for uh, for the Breeders' Cup there. Bell Beck, as mentioned on these airwaves by Michael, getting the job done. Obviously, you were thrilled with the performance from a gambling perspective. What did you think of it from an analyst perspective, and what are you hearing about this crew? Well, it's very rare that you draw out the race um, and where you don't know exactly how the ground, how soft the ground is going to be, and it actually works exactly how you thought it would. Um, the Antarctic coming out kind of threw a, a, a bit of a wrench into it, but at the same time, I thought that this the Bellbeck was going to win or go very close, no matter what, and I backed him accordingly. Um, if you look at his his the way he's prepped and the way he came into it, the switch to McHale, um, his earlier runs, the line through race and the ground all put together, he was uh, he was a very obviously sort of bad on paper, good if you watch the tapes kind of horse. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it's the, I don't I don't think he would come over, and I don't think it's in the cards for him. I think they're very aware that he's a ground dependent horse. It just the only way they would do it is if Fob just throws up his hands and says, "You do what you want with the horse. Go ahead." I don't think he's aiming this horse toward this race. If he runs again this season, it would possibly be maybe the maybe the um, the Vernon Futurity at Doncaster or the um, the Criterium International, both at the end of October at a mile. Certainly more likely to get that kind of ground in either of those spots, though. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's going to be rock hard at Keeneland. Naomi, what were your thoughts on the Lugadere? Yeah, I thought uh, Belbeck was quite impressive. He was actually, I thought he was a little bit keen at the beginning, but then ended up kind of settling mid-pack and just quieting down a little bit for Mikel. So I thought he did quite a, yeah, I think I thought he gave him a really good ride, actually. Just kind of settled mm-hmm. him and said, hey, you know, let's gather ourselves. And then what Mike already highlighted, I think if you get a horse to start doing that, you also allow them to get further in terms of their distance in their racing. And he just got there in the end. He showed that, you know, he wasn't stopped by the ground, as, as Mikey said. Uh, I think he just really enjoyed himself, to, to be quite honest. Now, from what I gathered, they won't be going to the Breeze Cup Juvenile Turf, but I guess uh, it is Andre Fab, so I, I wouldn't say completely rule it out. Of course, he's been very prolific at the Breeders' Cup in the past, so why not? But I don't think they're going with this juvenile. Maybe the Boostack for the second race on the day, winning your action for that juvenile Phillies turf race will have more Breeders' Cup implications. I think this was also a decent gambling result for you, Michael, knowing your affinity for never-ending story and not just as a musical hunch play. If never-ending story had got a job done, I was going to insist that you sing, but a third place is a good result, but you're off the hook. Yeah, but when she tipped out uh, at the top of the lane and made a quick Did you burst into the song? I was about to sing, <laughs> but then Blue Rose Send sort of came up the inside, and she was just far too strong. I think there is a good chance that Blue Rose Send will consider the uh, consider the Breeders' Cup because you know uh, Christopher Head has obviously comes from a family that has strongly supported the Breeders' Cup, being a son of Freddie Head, and I believe this may have been his first Group One. I'm not certain. Uh, it, as was. A, as a, it was. It was. As yeah. a trainer, he's a young, young trainer, very approachable, very kind, um, very much on the, on the class of his parentage and lineage, uh, who worked um, for years under his aunt cricket head. I think that this is um, a serious filly, and the way that she had a nice turn of foot on the soft going was 
impressive, to be honest. I think she'd be even more impressive if she was given a chance to try good going, which she's only had once and ran a very good, uh, very good second enlisted company in August. Um, interesting horse. Uh, they seemed in the parade ring. If you're watching the body language, when I always watch in the win in your ends, when they put on the, the win in your end towel of the horse, yep. whether or not they do it with like, you know, they're like, oh, okay, do it. Or they get very excited about it. And this this ownership was very excited to put that towel on the Philly. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love that not, inside info. <laughs> I, I, I would not be shocked if she if she came over. Um, I hope never any story does because I think the way way she turned over after that initial burst, you always know whether or not they handle the soft going. If they they'll turn over quickly and they'll make kind of a burst, but then they can't sustain it if they're not handling the ground. And that was her for me. Um, I look forward to uh, supporting her financially once again as she heads to Keeneland. What did you think of the result here, Naomi? I, Christopher Head certainly a name I think we can be looking for for a, quite a long time. And curious to know if you had any intel on any of these you think might make the trip. Yeah, it was quite quite lovely. I got the chance to speak with him afterwards as well and, and ask him actually if he'd already spoken to his dad, Freddie Head. He hadn't yet because we grabbed him just after the press conference. But it was his first Group one win, so mentally proud. And of course, this filly, she had won at Longchamp before. I'm trying to remember the name. It was a group three, Pridomal. Um, she won here, so clearly she likes the track. And I just thought that she looked so comfortable. She broke well. She was close to the pace. Kind of just went through on the inside and responded and, and was much the best. That just looked, she looked to really enjoy herself, really extended belatedly. And well, when we asked if they were looking at the Breeders' Cup, you know, juvenile turf for her, they were actually Freddie was not Freddie Christopher, excuse me, was kind of saying we're not sure yet. It felt that point felt like they were leaning towards giving her a break and perhaps aiming for the Prix de Diane next year. Of course, the you know the, the French are kind of equivalent uh, that they were maybe going to save her for that and then look at other international targets when she's a three year old instead. So I'm not sure if she'll be coming over or not. I'd love to see her in terms of like other horses out the race. Just I, I was given a list, but this list was from before the weekend, so it was not as updated. I didn't see anyone that was in this field that could be going, but if they do set never-ending store, of course, uh, for Aidan O'Brien, that would be quite nice because I thought she ran well, and, and there's still plenty of improvement left with her, I feel. That wouldn't surprise me one bit. I mean, you see so much Coolmore representation at this meeting, and just on pedigree, doesn't she feel like one who, who should do okay here? She's I mean, a they can run on anything, so yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and Blue Rose, yeah. speaking of pedigree on that, Blue Rose Sen is a Churchill. We've seen this for apparently these Churchills, they can handle any kind of ground. Um, we see it with, with I believe Vadini is also a Churchill. Um, but what's interesting about Blue Rose Sen is she's a daughter of Queen Blossom, who was a very good filly. She started in Europe, but she went to Richard Baltus and was a very good filly of her firm ground in Grade of Six Company in California. Sure. We got to get a bug in their ear and see if we can see if we can influence policy here and, and <laughs> talk about the money and the great experience that is Keeneland for the Breeders' Cup. I, I, I'd love to see it. Um, that's for sure. Let's move on to the race after the arc, the Prix de l'Opera. We were talking about this one a little bit before. Nashua, uh, long discussed as a horse to, to make the trip over potentially six to four, three to two favorite in this spot ends up getting uh, ends up just getting beaten by a big long shot in the form of uh, plastic carousel. Naomi, give me your thoughts on this one. I I mean, yeah, big long shot, right? I think she was what something like 40s, 41 uh, to one yep. in the end. And her best effort 
in terms of her career was actually second behind above the curve earlier in the year at the same track over the same distance in the Prix de Saint Allery. So again, another horse that enjoys long champ that seems to be working out uh, quite well uh, for these runners. And of course, uh, Andre Fraber again, and he's well, he's won like five previous cups. Most recently, I remember Talismanic in the turf for him. I do believe they're looking at going to the British Cup with her. That's what I've been gathering, that they're very, very happy with what she did. And of course, like you said, Nashua. Uh, Nashua's very, very talented filly, pretty Anne, NASA winner. I definitely say they'd still be, be bringing her over. She was on the list before. She really did not mm-hmm. disgrace herself, just got beaten by a long shot, but still ran really well. Michael, what's your understanding of who's who might be coming over from here? And what did you think of the effort of the top finishers or any of the others down the field? I mean, I thought that uh, the winner was really impressive. She really saw out the trip, and that's probably why, uh, from what I've heard, she might be considering the turf in lieu of the of the Philly and Mayer turf. Um, it was a brilliant training job. She's been off since the Prix de Dien, so she's been off since June. She's uh, trained with this race in mind, and it's nice because Al Shakab, when they have a horse, even a, a very high-end horse, they are keen to always send them. Uh, to the Breeders' Cups, and that's always good to see. Um, Mikhail and Andre teamed up twice on this day. Andre Fab, just think, just and Mikhail Barcelona teamed up and won with a twenty to one shot, and he's thirty thirty in some markets, and a forty to one shot plus. <laughs> uh, you know, like it's insane. Uh, it, it's yep. it, it, it's, it, but it's, but the weird part is that before this day, he had not won a Group One in a year. So it's, it's, which is shocking. So he made up for it quickly and I hope that he had some money down on it as well. <laughs> uh, it looked like Holly Doyle possibly took a, tried to take a page out of Luke's book one race later um, and moved Nashua a little bit soon, kind of took the race by the throat and hoped to outclass them coming home. Um, and she almost did. I mean, everybody was cheering her to win there. I, I, you could hear Holly, Holly, Holly happening. You know, she has such a following as a jockey, but she well, got then it happened the next race, right? They were shouting. Her name. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, she made up for it at that point. Um, I thought above the curve run out in a solid race, uh, Tuesday gave it, gave a decent enough amount of, uh, effort to maybe be considered, uh, going forward. And my, my pick on the day, my Astra just couldn't quite class it up at, um, under those conditions. And, and that's not, you know, the, the three Phillies ahead of her are, are certified group one winners. So Nashville moving forward, you'll de- probably definitely see her in the Breeders' Cup. That's been the plan and she will be the favorite. That's interesting that they will be looking at different races potentially with the race being held at, I think it's a mile and three sixteenths, the Philly and mayor. So plus the carousel needing to get that stamina into play, perhaps going longer against the boys, maybe another Philly in there. Warlike goddess is being talked about though. I guess we'll see how she runs this weekend. It sounds like she's going to go in New York as opposed to Toronto, but uh, Nashua, that's great news that that's still the plan. Can you imagine any of the others, either of you, from from down the field, who you think might uh, might make the trip over? I mean, it seemed like coming in, there were several interesting candidates. Mm-hmm. I'm I mean, about, about, I wonder what they want to do with above the curve. Actually, I should have asked them. Yeah, I think she'll come. Like she should be a good one to come. Yeah. I like the way she ran. She's clearly very. I, I like her actually. I think she really put her nose down in the final stages. Really, still full of run, just didn't get there in time. Cool pedigree and a cross you might be seeing a lot of. American Pharaoh and uh, and a Galileo dam, uh, fabulous here with Above the Curve. Y- you might think it wouldn't be the worst idea for them to feature um, that Philly, that cross in 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 front of the entire uh, racing industry in America at a day like the Breeders' Cup, right? 
she i mean she's on the list so if they're happy with the way she ran which from what i gathered from the connections they are above the curve that is i don't see a reason not to go let's move on to one of the, the stories of the day in a race you guys were alluding to with the chance of uh, of holly and this was one uh, michael i saw you were chatting with uh, andy serling online andy made the point that to most american horse players the idea that you could have a, a two-year-old filly uh, contesting a race like this, not only contesting it, but to be a heavy favorite, it's like mind-blowing to most American horse players. But when you follow the scene over there, not really even out of the ordinary. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, very much so. I mean, if we could have a tar- if we had straight turf sprints in America where you could fit 20, 24 horses in a straight uh, down the lane, we would probably have two-year-old plus races instead of uh, at these sprints and stakes levels. I, it's not shocking at all. She gets a massive weight break carrying 116 pounds to 137 for an older male. And she had already proven that she's better than all of these when she won, when she was a good second to Highfield Princess at York. And Highfield Princess has proven to be the standard um, and the champion sprinter to be uh, in the UK or in Europe, rather. So it's it's... To me, it was just form, no matter what the age was. You can add to that, she got a, a plum draw in seven. And there is a huge bias uh, on the straight course there, where you have to be, she's on the outside of it, but you really have to be in sort of the first six or seven uh, to consider yourself in with a big chance. The inside paths, for some reason or another, nobody knows why, are just better. Uh, and you'll see it year after year in these pre de labes. Uh, in any fight for a long sprint at Longchamp. But yeah, it was, and Holly was so confident on her. White mm-hmm. Lavender ran a huge race, huge race, hard knocking horse. Um, and I would love to see Carl Burke have another horse coming toward the Breeders' Cup. I know he has a, a horse that I still consider my my pick to win the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf and Holloway Boy, um, uh, can, who plans to come over with that one. Uh, I think that this would be a horse that would be flying under the radar. It'd be a nice story to get this horse over, but white lavender hopefully will head that way as well. Platinum queen, which race are they talking about? I, I would assume uh, the juvenile sprint. Yeah. yeah they, can't, they, they can't run in the, the turf sprint because it's three year olds and older. So oh, I was thinking if there was any thought oh, of maybe stretching out, but I mean, I, I, uh, I don't know why you would when you have that kind not of for the same purse. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I wouldn't. No, that's a good point too. There's really no, there's really no reason to. I wonder. It, that's that's shaping up to be a pretty interesting race. That juvenile turf sprint, and I, I'm, mm-hmm. I don't share the antipathy for it that that some do. I think it's a race that over time, especially as we begin to, you know, build more of a, a division around it in this country, and obviously has it's just an interesting chance to have the head to heads and and horses that don't that don't quite fit going longer. And, you know, without knowing all who all is going to show up, it, it's tricky to say. But I would imagine in the international markets, is she a, is she a heavy favorite for it right now? Uh, very much. I think she would, would be the favorite right now at this point. Um, it depends on what kind of buzz comes out of Carl Burke's yard with Dramatized because people do consider her at her best to be one of the best, if not the best, uh, six five to six furlong sprinter for, for juvenile fillies. Um, if she comes back to her Royal Ascot form. So it, I think it's a fascinating race coming together because the Europeans who are coming are, are holding no punches. You know, they're, right. they're, 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 they're coming after it. And that might, from a betting standpoint, I mean, I'm going to guess that they're going to be very tough from a betting standpoint. It creates value very much the way it did with Twilight Gleaming last year. 
What did you did you get a chance, Naomi, to speak with Holly Doyle after? And what did that win mean to her? I didn't get a chance to speak with her. I did listen, and and obviously she was super super excited. I I think if I just watched back that race, and Mikey already highlighted it as well. The Platinum Queen, she was just so confidently ridden there. She broke like a rocket. She nearly, I'm pretty sure she broke, outbroke the entire field. And I loved her from before. Obviously, we've seen her strut her stuff against all the runners in the last few races now. Loved her at York when she ran second there to Highfield Princess in the Nunthorpe. And then what she, of course, did on very soft ground. I think this was the softest ground she's ever encountered in her entire career. I'm pretty sure it was. To show that it didn't deter her, love the fact that she can run on fast ground too. So I don't know if she's going to have any problems whatsoever in the US. And Mikey already highlighted, I, I think it's going to be a tremendous race. I was still looking at some others because I know that some of the other runners in this race were on the list to come over to Keeneland, including a case of you as well as Flotus. And I remember, of course, a case of you uh, won the Alquaz at Maidan, really, you know, had a good couple races, but hasn't really been back to his best form, especially in his last few. So I wonder if they still want to make the trip over. Of course, he came over uh, Del Mar last year mm-hmm. with fifth behind. He had a good Powell race. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I just wonder, are you still going to come? Because he, as much as he ran okay, he has not been back to his best form. Can you make an excuse for this day being on the, he was on the wrong side, wasn't he, Michael? Yeah, he wasn't. He, yeah, he was kind of called out. Last year, he kind of, he got a beautiful ride and, and tucked in for most of the race in the paths that I mentioned before, down toward the inside, and only yeah. tipped out when he had to, and then ran down, ran down um, uh, Air de Vals. Uh, but uh, t- to me, I, I have to, I have to really rewatch it and see if there was a moment that he's not really kicking up, the, picking up the ground because I was shocked that he handled the soft ground last year. <laughs> um, I think he's much, very much a fast ground horse, and he proved that here in, in Dubai. Uh, but you know, maybe they'll 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 carry on with him because the rumor was before the race that he was just uh, beating down the stall, like he was ready to run, and right. and maybe you know I don't want to keep making excuses for him. Maybe he was still a race away, um, which can happen with these sprinters. So, you know, and he did have most of the summer off. So I I, I look I forward to seeing whether or not he can. He was he was on the wrong side, but it looked like he wasn't really traveling. He was kind of. Yeah pretty quickly outpaced it looked like so just from looking at his last couple of races he isn't starting to pick back up to the quality that he showed earlier this year as well as last year when he was really really good of course on the pre labage already mentioned so I, I don't know what they're going to do with him I, I think they gave him some time off just to give him a chance to perhaps find that form again We'll be paying attention to the stories of horses coming over. We'll we'll be in touch with the team. And Michael does a great job on on Twitter. And I'm sure Naomi will be paying attention as well. Tweeting what about, about Flotus, the best name for a oh, horse yeah. that needs to come over. First lady <laughs> of the right. United States. Come on. Come very on. US, <laughs> bring, US style. bring her I, over. I heard they are keen. The rumors that they are keen uh, to send her, they were hoping she run a whole lot better because she ran so big in the Flying Five. Her form in the Flying Five should earn her a spot in the gate on rating. Um, It just depends on whether or not this tarnishes her a bit. Yeah, she's on the list to to go over. I thought she ran... I expected her to run a little better because of that performance in the Flying Five, but alas, here we are. One other platinum queen point is I think one of the reasons why some Europeans have struggled in sprints in general at the Breeders' Cup is that lack of alacrity getting right out of the gate. And that's something that mm-hmm. does not seem like it's going to be a problem for, for platinum queen and maybe a reason to that, that I'd be a little bit more bullish than some of these heavily bet, well-fancied 
sprinters that we've seen come over before. Anyway, mm-hmm. just, a, just a thought on that. We do want to talk about the, the Prix de la Foray as well before we get out of here because we've got multiple runners, as we were indicating before, <laughs> looking like they're going to be coming over to the Breeders' Cup. But let's start with the result itself, Naomi. What was your reaction? He just seemed like he was well, Kim Ross, that is the winner. He just seems like he was well placed. He was always sort of close enough, which you do like to see on that softer ground. It is hard to really, really accelerate. Actually, I thought that was Tocatotasso did quite well to still show that kick despite being it so deep. He just, he just looked like he was, like Frankie had plenty left in the tank. Once he started to ask him, he ran on and, and then he was just kind of much the best. I mean, what was it? One or two, two lengths, I think it was. So yeah, it just it seemed like it was his race to lose from the get-go, to be honest, and, and he duly delivered. Made no mistake, that's for sure. And this is a horse, Michael, you were indicating that the plan for a long time has been Breeders' Cup for, for Kinross. Yeah. So how do the, you think he'll look in there? Well, he, he'll be second or third choice at this point. He'll probably be second choice behind modern games. Um, uh, if they're smart. Um, but it, to me, it's, it's, he was very impressive. The European trainers over the last few years have started to quickly realize that when you have a strong seven furlong horse in Europe, they make a very good Breeders' Cup mile horse. Yeah. And, um, I mean, we saw it obviously with Space Blues. Um, we saw it with, um, Sir Michael Stout's expert eye a few years ago. You know, these are seven furlong horses that came over and did very well. So, Rafe Beckett is trying to follow suit. He's won the exact two races that Space Blues won coming in. Um, the uh, the Skybet um, City of York over seven furlongs, and then the Prix de la Forêt. So, I mean, he's following a proven path, and he's got the right rider, right? Uh, I thought Malaveth ran a huge race. I mentioned that earlier. Intensely good ride um, from Christophe Simeon on this horse. And then uh, and Scheiden, who was my, my favorite place bet of the day um went off at this insane price at 35 to 1 for no reason nobody knows why this horse gets no respect uh and loves uh-huh. soft ground <laughs> Lo- loves soft ground and loves um loves soft ground loved running in france last year and this is a horse that that was had every excuse to run a poor race last year and ran a good third so yeah this is this is a good race and i think that you'll see ken ross come over Malavath, I don't know if she's rated high enough to sort of make it into the field. So hopefully they consider maybe the Philly Mary Turf nine and a half stretch out for her. Maybe she can save some ground and make some noise there. Um, wouldn't be surprised if they send maybe a tenebrism um, out of the race. It's to me just a you know it's a, it's always such a good race to find these Breeders' Cup mile horses because it is seven furlongs. They do have to be quick and agile, um, but they still have to finish it out. I think some can also that highlight is- how. Malafat with the fee and then Malafat, the top pletcher horse, getting me <laughs> so confused and annoyed all the time. I'm like, no, no, no. Two readers the, in a row, too. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, the American Malafat, you know, the, the Philly, the dirt Philly, the Ensign winner, you know, that one, the Alabama winner, that one, or the turf Philly. <laughs> We could we could yeah. have we could have that confusion Breeders Cup uh, Breeders Cup week for for sure. I, I'm yeah. re- really looking forward to seeing who turns up and how it all turns out. Again, one of the things I think we do a real good job of on the network is giving you a line on some of these Europeans and and who should who you should be paying attention to. Hopefully, we've started to do that on this show. I did have one last question. You mentioned modern games. Any mm-hmm. chance he runs on Champions Day? Either one of you. I'll start with Michael on that. Um, or do you think he his next start will be the Breeders' Cup mile? I think that he'll run in the Breeders' Cup. I think only if 
uh, how do I say this politically? Um, only uh, I think only if 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 the big boss says he's gonna ride on Champions Day, does he ride on Champions Day? Um, yeah. And uh, I I feel like Charlie has made this plan from a while back, and he's sticking to it with modern games. And um, as big as he ran at Woodbine, I think Charlie's well aware that horses bounce out of big efforts, and having that month and a half to the Breeders' Cup is absolutely ideal for him. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, Naomi, you'll be there at Champions Day, it sounds like, uh, with me. Doesn't I, I don't imagine you have any more uh, – I don't even want to call it optimism because I, I think it is the right <laughs> move to just wait. As, mu- as fun as it would be to see him at Champions Day, I think it is the right move for him to wait, come there fresh, and, and hopefully just continue to do what he's done. I'm a big fan of that Modern Games. Yeah, well, from what I gathered, they're not planning on going, and they'll just kind of keep him fresh and uh, – move on but gosh modern games is such a good horse isn't he i think he'll still forever in my mind be the horse that didn't count in the british cup juvenile turf <laughs> i've blocked he... that out i've blocked that out the money lost i just try not to think about it it still keeps popping back in my head but <laughs> it wasn't his my favorite my favorite story about that moment was that i watched the race right beside on the rail beside charlie he looks over to me. He's like, Michael, what's going on? What's going on? He's like, are we, are we still? He's like, uh, he says something to the effect, are we still running? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, yes, Charlie, you're still running in the race, but you've been taken out of the, the wagering pool for some reason. And I'm like, he's like, okay, okay. <laughs> so it, it was, See, it was I one of the... it because it's so, it was so bad for the betters. And Hondo, my husband, had a pick five that was, was live to Modern Games. His first pick five he bet, and it like mm. it was a what oh, is it sixty dollar ticket and it would have paid huge, and I had to explain to him what happened and he wasn't even going to get his money back. And then try <laughs> to explain to someone that's not in horse racing that as a punter you are not protected. There are mistakes that were made and that you were not helped at all. Like it was just it was that that stung moment. because you're trying to defend your industry, an industry that you love, that clearly wasn't actually showing that same love back at that point in time. Like it was, that was a painful one. It was. Well, it hopefully was you can make up for it this year. I'm being kind, I'm being kind <laughs> leaving it on for I've, I've railed enough about this on the airwaves. The listeners. Oh, no, I know. But clearly modern games, very, <laughs> very good horse. Loved him. Loved what he did up at Woodbine as well. And it seems like they just want to run him fresh. I mean, he didn't have mm-hmm. a, a tremendously, I mean, he's had a couple of races already earlier this season. He seems like he's just doing well. Why overdo it? Right. I guess that's more the modern right. way yeah. of training he's nowadays as well. He's been fairly busy as well. He's been steady. Speaking of, oh, of better ahead. news, real, real fast, no. better news with um, Godolphin Champions Day, Breeders' Cup implication vibe. Um, Charlie Appleby was quoted in saying that if Adiar quote runs a good second in the champion, that uh, there is a chance that he would come for the Breeders' Cup turf, and we all know he will win. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. At this point, with Appleby in North America, you can pretty much just just head to the window. <laughs> I mean, but if you look at the current Breeders' Cup, and and if Adiar would go, I mean, he would. I mean, Pile Drivers out, yet. unfortunately. Pile Drivers yeah. out. Yeah. Luxembourg's out. You know, you this race what? is his to win. You have got Breeders' Cup winning your ends winners. A uh, Gufo, right? No, he's not. Uh, Adier's better. Sorry, uh, gold. So you guys better be red night. Gotta... Go for, uh, bring him a bottle of wine when you guys are on champ- at Champions Day, and, yeah. and do whatever you can. Talk to Charlie. Yeah, <laughs> get, get him to send the horse. We'll put it on the to-do list. We'll add him to the dance card. So that does that mean, Michael? There's no chance you're going to be joining us uh, next weekend. Uh, 
I, I think I'm at I'm at fifty fifty right now. I have to talk to the bosses and see whether or not they're going to send an English presenter. And uh, and if so, I'll be there with bells on and and not nearly as having as much fun as you are. <laughs> <laughs> I said next weekend. It's the it's the it's the the fifteenth. It's the fifteenth is the uh, is Champions Day. Anyway, we'll have coverage of that here on the network as well, guys. We're over time and we have another guest to get to, so we're going to cut it here. But uh, we'll have you on much many many more times before the Breeders' Cup. Cheers. Take care. Want to give a shout out to our friends at Hawthorne and their successful Hawthorne Invitational last weekend. Going to have Chris Larmy on in the next segment to talk about his experience in winning that. But want to let you know, lots of other good stuff coming up at Hawthorne, especially contest-wise Thanksgiving weekend. They've got uh, their famous series, one of the best deals going if you're looking to qualify for the NHC at a favorable uh, price point to players. To get the contest schedule, in inthemoneypodcast.com slash H-A-W. Next up on the show, happy to welcome in a returning guest, a man who once really shoved it in our faces. One of the years that we did a Kentucky Derby draft, he did a team selected entirely of undrafted horses and actually tied for first that year. That's how good he is. He's a handicapping Hall of Famer, and he added to that Hall of Fame resume with a win in the Hawthorne Invitational over the weekend from the Sport of Kings podcast. He is Chris Larmy. Chris, how are things? Uh, doing great. Um, really happy to be back on the show. It's been a long time. Um, I always enjoy speaking about racing with you, Pete, and um, you've always been a big supporter of horse players and contest players, so you know, I look forward to chatting with you some this morning. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for those kind words. Let's start with this past weekend, the Hawthorne Invitational. For those that missed it, explain what it was. It was really kind of interesting, uh, unique contest. Uh, Hawthorne, first of all, Hawthorne is just one of the, the best venues for contest players. They put on, uh, you know, contests year round that are really player friendly in that there's no entry fees. And this contest was one of those where you had to put up your bankroll, but uh, it all uh, went into your bankroll. So you kept whatever you made and all the prizes were put up by Hawthorne. So that was great. Um, You don't get that opportunity very often. And uh, it was unique in that it was an invitational. I'm not exactly sure how they decided who they would invite, but it was uh, probably under 50 players. I'm not sure exactly how many were there. They've done this three times. They had done it twice before the pandemic. This was the first year since the pandemic hit that they uh, came back and did it. I was in the first one that they did and actually finished second. That was a lot of fun. Um, The formats, they they did a produced recording of it the, the, the first two years. This year, they went to a live stream so that, you know, there, uh, there was a video, but it was live stream. So the format was trying to make it a little more interesting if you're trying to, you know, record it or live stream it. So sure. it was almost all mandatory races. You had to bet. Uh, I think before the final race, there were five mandatory races and everyone got to choose one optional race. And in the mandatory races, you had to bet exactly $200 in each of those races. And you can only make vertical bets. You couldn't play any horizontal bets. And then there was the final uh, race in which you had to bet a minimum of $800. So 
the way the contest is set up, you everybody had at least $800 going into last race because you could only bet $200 a race for six races and you started with $2,000. So everybody, even if you hit nothing, you, you were going to have $800 going in that last race, which they kind of designed that so everybody would have a shot at the end and, you know, it all comes down to who, who can hit that last race. And, um, uh, but you could bet as much as you wanted if you did build your bankroll. So, you know, it was a little bit different tactically in how you would approach, you know, the, the races before the final race and the final race. And it actually played out kind of an interesting way. And I kind of got lucky. I, th- I feel really lucky to, I mean, you're always lucky if you're going to win a contest like this. Um, but I was lucky in some unusual ways. I didn't really have much luck from a racing luck standpoint, but just some other things we can talk about um, really worked out in my favor. I want and, to hear uh, about the strategy and, and how it all came down to that last race. It certainly, live bankroll typically comes down to the last race. This seems like an extended, uh, exaggerated version of what it's usually like. What was your approach and how did it all pan out for you? Yeah, you're right. You know, most of the live bankroll contests come down at last race occasionally someone blows it open early you know every once in a while that does happen especially if you have someone like tommy hammer in the contest Um, (laughs) that was the name that came to mind when you said that especially with with keeneland coming up his his adopted home track uh tommy mass as he yes uh, hitting some hitting something wild early but when he's not involved it's usually the last race yeah, and Tommy was not in this contest, but it was a pretty stellar field um, because it was a kind of invitational. It was mostly people who have had some pretty good contest success. And NHC in partic- champions, and yeah, it was a great uh, – Marshall Graham was on hand, a BCBC winner. It really was a, a, a who's who. Um, Scott Coles, who folks know from our network very well, Frank Mastari, Justin Mastari. I mean, it was a cool uh, Chicago heavy, obviously, but, but yeah, a really Dave, impressive uh, lineup. Ryan, um, uh, Jim Bennis. I mean, those Chicago players are pretty good. They're good. Um, and they were the pretty much all there um, in force. Um, so, you know, that so you, you weren't there weren't too many schmucks in the field. And so everybody <laughs> in there really had a, a it was dangerous and you knew um you know could could be a threat so even though it wasn't a big field i'd say it was just as difficult to win this this contest with 50 people as it would be for you know a contest with 300 people or whatever because of, of the quality of the players that were in there um and uh so you know getting back so so getting to the the how that affected the one thing interesting about most contests that come down in the last race, though, you know, usually there's a whole bunch of people that have tapped out by the time you get to that last race, right? So, yeah, everybody's taking a swing, but a lot of people don't have any ammunition left to swing with. But the way this was set up, everybody had at least $800 going into that last race. So nobody was eliminated going to the last race, which was, you know, makes it kind of interesting, I thought. Did it make um, you have to be more aggressive? I mean, that's where my brain goes right away. That happened. Yeah. So many thought, good players with bullets. You, you, you know, it's not, you can't probably be spready with your opinion in that last race. You probably have to just go for it. I'm guessing that's what was your mentality. Absolutely. I thought, you know, and I, I, to, to give you a, a sense of it, what the last time they held this wasn't last year, but the last time they held the contest, 
Frank Mistari hit for like $25,000 in the last race. So, and he won, obviously. Um, so that was kind of, I was thinking like $20,000 is what you're going to need to win it. Um, and depending on what happened before you going into that final race, you know, somebody might now, have Just blown. to interject, Chris, just to interject, that would be a, a bigger multiple than you would expect from a typical live bankroll contest, correct? Yeah, although... You know, like I use like the Keeneland contest coming up is about the same bankroll. And I think, you know, usually takes, I, you know, I've had $20,000 at the end of that contest and finished second. So, you know, $20,000 is probably not a, a, you know, ten, a 10 multiple is probably not about what I would say to win a, a, a you know, a, a, a strong field uh, bankroll contest for two to 3,000 starting bankroll. You know, that's I think be a reasonable target to win, not necessarily to place. I don't know. What do you think? That would be my nor- number in a in a normal one. And I was thinking this because of the because of the na- the nature of the field and knowing everybody was going to have money. I would have thought that you know it would be north of that. Obviously, Breeders' Cup, the way that contest has evolved, that's its own animal now. Where it's gonna you're gonna need way more than that. You're going to need way more than 10x if you want to win. But that yeah. is, you know, it, and it's it's one of those where you can't say it with any certainty. But when Pete and I get asked that all the time, how much do you think the winning score is going to be? And, you know, you preface it with, well, it all depends. But but yeah, that 10x has sort of a baseline number normally. And then you sort of go up from there, depending on a number of factors, including you know, how top heavy is the format as opposed to how flat is the format. And then also factors. I mean, the the Hawthorne contest brings in these couple of other interesting variables. Yeah. And I think you made a really good point about the, the prize pool and, and is it really top heavy or is it sort of flat? If it's sort of flat and somebody jumps out to a big lead, I think most people just ignore them and they're shooting for second place or third, because there's not a big difference between, you know, second and first. But if, it's real top heavy, you know, people still may be taking a shot at trying to catch somebody, even if they open up a big lead. So how was it case, in this contest? Um, it was sort of in between that wasn't huge prize money. So like when I won the contest and I won $10,000 in cash, $10,000 BCBC spot and an NHC spot, that has a million dollar bonus if you win the NHC, which is kind of fun because now, now when I go to the NHC, I have a chance to win, you know, a million, almost two million dollars if I win it. That makes it a little more exciting. Um, and then you got to keep your bankroll if you, you know, whatever you you had at the end of the contest. And then for second place, uh, it was a BCBC spot. I think so. There was a pretty good difference between first and second. Um, so I, you know, but it wasn't like a hundred thousand dollars for to twenty thousand dollars or something like that. Makes sense. So tell us about your approach heading into that last race. How had it gone for you to that point, and how did it play out? Well, this is kind of the lesson to learn is I had had some miserable luck throughout the entire day going into that last race, and this is part of the lucky part for me because. The way I normally play, I had a, I, they were mandatory races and there were really only a couple races that I really liked. And on a normal, if there had been normal rules and um, I hadn't had to save 800 
dollars for the last race, I would have been at zero going into the last race. <laughs> Funny, but so because um, I I didn't things didn't work out for me in the races that I liked. Um, so you know if this had been a different format, I would have been at the bottom of the leaderboard. <laughs> So yeah, that that just shows you that, you know, uh, sometimes things work out in strange ways and that you'd never anticipate. So I did have some bad luck. Um, the probably the I don't know if we want to talk about any of the races, but uh, one of the stronger opinions I had was in the Santa Anita Sprint Championship or whatever they call it. Um, I liked a horse named Super Ocho quite a bit. I had talked about him on our Sport of Kings podcast that we do every week. Um, and he was 10 to one. And if you watch the race, I don't know if you saw the race, you know, I think he was the best horse in the race. I mean, his, his rider just was like water skiing on him for a quarter of a mm -hmm. mile and checked him way back. And then he moves him three wide into an ultra hot pace where the top two horses completely spit the bit. And he still dug in and only got beat a length um, to a bunch of horses that sucked up and, you know, got perfect trips behind the hot pace. So, that was kind of frustrating because that one is where I, you know, really um, stepped out. And if I'd had a little better luck, I think I could have built a pretty strong bankroll. Um, and I probably would have been, that would have been it for me in the contest. I probably would have been all in on that horse in a different format. Um, the format so saved I, you though. It saved, yeah, it saved me. The format actually saved me and gave me a chance. I did hit an earlier race. So I wasn't down to $800. Um, even the race I hit, I was really unlucky because I had played a, a win bet and a, a big exacta and my exacta horse got beat, got, you know, snapped at the wire despite having horrifically bad start um, was probably <laughs> the best horse in the race. This horse name, it was yes. And yes, I think was the name of the horse in the, um, it was in the uh, turf sprint at, at Belmont at Aqueduct. And, um, but I did have the winner in that race. So I had a little bank ride, like $1,300 going into the last race and nobody had really jumped way out in front. I think the leader was, um, about like $3,500 or something like that. Um, so, uh, you know, I felt like I had a real shot with $800. I mean, and $3,500 on top, I, I had a shot. So. My strategy was to, I, there was a horse I really liked quite a bit in there, in the race. Um, was it the Hawthorne Derby? Kind of, was that the was that The, the Hawthorne Derby person? was the final race, yes. And a horse named Speaking Scout, I thought was kind of a standout. Um, again, I don't know how much you want to talk about the handicapping aspect of it, but um, this horse, if you watch, you know, he just had all kinds of excuses in his recent races. I think he was much better than his form indicated. And to me, kind of laid over the field if he if he finally got a good trip. That was a big if. Um, but he had a good post and he had some tactical speed. And I, I just thought a lot of the, the trips weren't his fault. Like in the, his last race, he had, it was at Kentucky Downs, which is you can almost draw a line through any bad performance at Kentucky Downs. But it was going a lot much longer on a kind of a, a soft course. And he got hung wide. I mean, there's it was it it was like that for all of his last recent races and, and especially with him cutting back in distance in a race where a lot of them had never gone a mile and eighth i just thought there was a lot in his favor he was the morning line favorite but 
um, based on Will Pays going into that race, he was going to be like the third choice. Um, and this is where it got kind of tricky. And I, I was sitting with Marshall Graham, which, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about, I haven't been to a live contest in like two years other than the Breeders' Cup last year at Del Mar. And if people haven't ever done this, it's just so fun to be with other players that share this passion that we have as horse players. Um, it, you used, it, there's the camaraderie that you just wouldn't expect when we're all competing with each other in these contests, but it's, I think that shared passion kind of overrides the competitive aspect and you just get to know people um, and learn from them and just, it's just a very fun social experience. And just spending the day sitting next to Marshall, um, I, I think I had a blast. I hope he, I think he enjoyed it too. Just talking about all kinds of stuff, racing related. Uh, Marshall's just such an interesting guy because he's, he's first, he's really sharp, but also, you know, he has experience in all different aspects of the game, you know, ownership, breeding, uh, horse playing, and just he's very analytical, you know. He has this kind of economic viewpoint of things and understands markets. And anyway, I just really enjoyed that part of it. And 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 Marshall's as sharp as they come about, you know, understanding the market and how um, uh, things play out. And because this was at a Hawthorne, which doesn't have large wagering pools, and because of the way they set this contest up, we were going to be a big part of that mutual pool. The people in that contest room were going to have an impact on on the odds, um, depending on how we bet. And it was really hard to predict how your bets and the other contest players' bets would impact the price you'll ultimately get. Um, because like, if you make a $1,000 win bet on a horse that's 10 to one, you're, just your bet will impact that, that horse's odds. Plus, who knows what the other people in the room are going to do and when they're gonna make their bets. So you had to kind of, factor that in and uh I don't, I don't know if i might be just rambling about this but this is the kind of stuff no, you have it's to... interesting we do i will throw it out there that we only have about three minutes left before i have uh, my next uh, all right next well thank you for just... giving me the warning um so anyway it came down to as i decided i would i would make uh, a win bet on the horse i liked and if it came in i figured i would get about forty five hundred dollars and that if I got lucky, would probably, I thought maybe get me in the top five. I assumed somebody was going to crush the race, but I figured, you know, that's great. And then I played in ex, uh, uh, two exactas, figuring if I could hit those, then I just ab absolutely crushed the race and then I could win the contest. So that's the way I played it. Um, the way it worked out is I got the winner. The, one, the horse got a dream run and won pretty easily. And then I got nosed out, or not nosed out, but I got beat by like a half a length on the exacta. So when the race was over, I kind of figured I would be top five, but you never know. And um, when they, uh, when all the dust settled, um, I was in second place on the leaderboard, <laughs> which surprised me. I was kind of happy. Um, so I thought I had finished second, but then. Um, uh, after they uh, a few minutes had passed, I Jim John Walsh came and talked, you know, congratulated me and said, "Great." And he goes, um, 
what what prize do you want? And I go, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you're the winner. I go, no, I finished second, right? He goes, no, we had to disqualify the winner because he failed to make his uh, final uh, mandatory bet. Oh, no. So, so I felt it's a horrible way to win. But if someone's going to get DQ'd, I like it to be in the contest. In your favor. Second place. I have to yeah. ask, who was the player? Uh, you know, I... I don't know for sure who that was. I I I don't ha- I didn't I don't know him personally. I mean, I talked to him afterwards. But I forgot his name, so I I have to apologize. It wasn't somebody that I knew though. It was a local person that I wasn't familiar with. Um, gotcha. So, so it seemed like a really nice guy, and he actually told them that he had he had missed that last bet. So it wasn't or, a surprise. Right. He knew he had. And, and it says right in there, you'll be disqualified if you fail to make all five mandatory bets, unless your horse is a late scratch or something. So he gets to keep the cash anyway. He, yeah, that's the one thing. He got to keep his cash. He, he would have beaten me by two hundred dollars. <laughs> um, and how close uh, did Scott Coles, who was eventually named second, get to you? Uh, I think he was like five hundred dollars behind me. Let me see. Uh, he was like three hundred dollars behind. And he, I think. Uh, had he hit the last race too? What was what was interesting to me was you know guys on the leaderboard who had a lot more money than me. They were really conservative. Like like they had to bet eight hundred dollars, and most of them only bet like eight hundred to a thousand dollars. Um, which is why I was able to win because you know if they they could easily have beaten me if they had been more. I actually bet more into that race. Than most of the people that were in the top ten on the leaderboard. Interesting. So, Interesting. yeah, um, I think it was because it was so tight. They felt like they didn't have to bet that much to win. Right. Um, but I think they were underestimating the fact that everybody behind them had at least eight hundred dollars. I think that's right. That sounds about right. That changes the dynamic significantly. Whereas in a typical live bankroll contest, the last thing you want to do is bet yourself out of position. We've seen that happen on a few high profile occasions and it's, and it's not good. I'll give you a chance to give us a closing thought here, Chris, but before we wrap up also, you mentioned the excellent opportunities at Hawthorne. Those are going to continue throughout the fall. We actually have created a pretty link on our website in the money podcast.com slash H a W the DRF code for Hawthorne uh, in the money podcast.com slash hall to get you a full schedule and, and be able to participate these in yourselves. Of course, you can catch much more from Chris over on the sport of Kings podcast. We definitely recommend you check that out. Uh, some real deep dives into races and good strategy as well, both from Chris and Scott Carson, you're going to get over there. You can play on the Sport of Kings website as well. We'll have that conversation another time. But yeah, any closing thoughts from you, Chris, before we wrap up this uh, edition of the show? Well, I do want to thank um, you know John and Jim and Nancy and and Rhonda and Emily and all the people from Hawthorne because they really treated us well. And that you you find that at almost all the, the tracks that host contests, you know. But Hawthorne is really one of the leaders in terms of. Um, the contests for players, and they do have more contests. They do them year-round. I think the next one's at Thanksgiving. Um, so if you're in that area, definitely take advantage of it. But if you ever want to um, 
I'd say it's worth traveling for that, you know, if you're looking, you're trying to get to the NHC and you haven't punched your ticket yet and you have multiple opportunities a weekend that everybody's off, I'd I'd look into traveling for it. It's that good of an opportunity in terms of NHC qualifying as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I just, and if you haven't played in contests, um, I just really encourage you to give them a chance. It's not for everybody, but especially if you live near a racetrack that hosts live contests, you know, give it a, a, a shot um, because it, it really is. It's different. It's fun. I, I've kind of forgot about how much fun I had when I go to these. Even if I had, um, you know, they had been a different format and I ended up with nothing. I, I would have had a good time. Like I said, just spending the day meeting all kinds of people, but just chatting with Marshall throughout the day. You know, we were sitting there and, and he, he they had put in a claim for a horse at Churchill. So it was kind of fun. I was just <laughs> trying to find out why did you put a claim in for this horse and, and anyway we, we had a lot of fun and and you, you're going to meet people that that uh you'll really enjoy i mean it depends again on your personality some people the last thing they want to do is go to a room full of people and talk to them but um for most of us um i think it's really worth worth um giving it a shot um if you haven't you done it before help. and, and, you and if you like me, yeah oh yeah and and learn as well and um uh the other thing is if you haven't gotten out of the habit of going in these contests like I had, you know, uh, I just, like I said, I sort of forgot how much fun it was to go to, to a live contest. So anyway. Chris, thank uh, you so much for your time today. Much appreciated. Thanks, mate. Thanks for inviting me on. Appreciate it, too. That's going to do it for this edition of the show. We'd like to thank Chris Larmy, Michael Adolfson, Naomi Tucker, and, of course, Kenny McPeak for their time today on this bonus extended edition of the In the Money Players podcast. We'll thank our founding partners, TRF and 10 Strike Racing. From what I'm hearing, Booms Boldly came out of his race okay. We'll see what happens next for him. Very excited to root for the purple and black all the time, but especially when they name one for me. How cool was that? Who else do we want to thank? How about all of you, the listeners, for making these shows so much fun to do? So much good Breeders' Cup content coming up, and a lot of it's going to be free. But if you want to get all the good stuff, I'm talking about notebooks for Keeneland and Santa Anita, lots of extra Breeders' Cup content, some extra podcasts as well, you're going to want to sign up for In The Money Plus, inthemoneypodcast.com slash plus. If you can't do that but still want to support us, rate, review, subscribe, do all that fun stuff wherever you get your pods. We're also on YouTube. We love those five-star reviews especially. Or, um, you know what you can do? Just sign up for our free email. That helps us too. And don't cost a thing. Inthemoneypodcast.com slash email. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. Our business manager is Drew Cotney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Ginchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornatel. May you win all your photos. <laughs>